Well, these days we have a lot to watch the news to see what's going on. And one famous writer described literature. Literature as news that stays news. News that stays news. Every reader in every generation finds literature just as intriguing and applicable as the previous generation. And this is certainly true for the book of Acts. We see things in a newspaper in a headline. It causes a brief flutter of excitement and, and the interest is one thing. But news that continues to sway the lives of millions of people and give meaning to people generations later is news worth pondering and considering. We're beginning a study in the book of Acts today, and oftentimes a study of the book of Acts has been reduced to maps in history. Now, if you know me, maps in history are two of my favorite things. And so you might be a little concerned, you can yawn now, that uh, the pastor might just inflict his favorite things on the congregation for a few months as we study uh, the book of Acts. But the message of the book of Acts is much more than just tracing the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul on a map. It's much more than documenting the founding and the history of the early church. The geography and the history in the book of Acts is the containers and the conta uh, carriers of the good news. The good news that the writer Luke wants us to know. He wants us to understand it. He wants us us to apply it to our lives. And what is that good news? What is it makes the book of Acts news that stays news? Well, please turn to the first chapter of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. If you're using the Bible that's on the tables today instead of on the rack, it's uh, page 1337, 1337. Acts chapter 1, the first book, or the first verse. And here, the writer refers to the first account. He says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. The book of Acts, therefore, is a second account written by Luke the physician, who was a traveling companion to the Apostle Paul. Luke's first account is the Gospel of Luke. So I'm going to keep you turning here for a little bit. Go back to Luke chapter 1, the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1, verse 1, because here in Luke's introduction to the gospel, we find also the introduction to the book of Acts, the second account, and the reasons that Paul was writing, or that Luke was, said Paul for so many months, I'm going to have to break that out, but Luke was writing, and uh, writing these accounts for a specific purpose. We find the introduction of the book of Acts in the gospel of Luke. Now here, and in both accounts, Luke is writing to someone that he calls Theophilus. And he calls him Excellent Theophilus here in, in Luke. Uh, Theophilus, we don't know who Theophilus was since he's called Excellent Theophilus. It seems that he had an official position of some kind. It seems like that, that uh, that's something that you would call somebody that, that's very important. Uh, his name comes from two words, Theos, which means God, and Phileo, which means love. Uh, you, we've heard of Philadelphia, Phileo Delphos, which is the city of brotherly love. Tonight in our men's study, we're going to be talking about Phileo, which is love, Agathos, which is good, that godly men are to be lovers of, of good. And so here we have Theophilus, which is Theo, God, loved or loved by God. This is somebody who's loved by God or a, 
or a friend of God. Ray Steadman knew a guy by the name of Theophilus and said, why is your name Theophilus? And he said, well, when I was born, my mom said, that's Theophilus' baby I've ever seen. <laughs> but, but this is just the, the opposite. <laughs> Theophilus, it is a neat name. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke writes, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Theophilus was either a believer or he was an active seeker. He needed more information. He had been taught about Jesus, as it were, but Luke wanted Theophilus to know. Now, there's a difference. This is the difference between great and ordinary teaching. This is the difference between studying the facts of history and knowing the God of history. When we teach, when we tell others about Jesus Christ, when we share our testimony, do we enable others to know him, to know Christ, or do we just pass on a body of content, some information? Is it just maps in history, as I have put it? You see, a person, or God is a person. He's not a concept. You can be instructed in concepts, but you can only know a person. We can't teach specific rules to govern relationships as we have relationships with people. We might try. We tell our six-year-old, and Florence is coming to visit, and here's how you should behave while she is here. This is what to say, and this is what to do. It just doesn't work. And I thought of this as an example of Queen Elizabeth. You know, if we really knew Queen Elizabeth, we would be comfortable with her in her presence, whether she's in a public setting, whether she's at a state dinner, whether she's making a speech, whether she's in her parlor, or wherever Queen Elizabeth might kick off her shoes and relax. We would know how to act. But if we just had information about Queen Elizabeth, we'd be totally clueless on what's the appropriate way to behave in those situations. So Luke is saying, Theophilus, this is not a new teaching about the concept of God. I want you to know the truth of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And in order to accomplish that, in order for Theophilus to come to know Jesus Christ, Luke became the careful historian. One of the very cool things here, Luke tells us that he compiled eyewitness accounts. And he investigated carefully. Luke didn't know Jesus when Jesus walked on this earth. We knew that we know that Luke came to know Jesus at some point in time. And in the book of Acts, you don't need to turn to it. But we first come across Luke the writer in Acts chapter 16 as a, as a believer. You might remember in our study of Paul's letter to the Philippians that Luke was one of Paul's companions when the apostolic band went to Philippi, when they heard the call, the Macedonian call, Luke was still there. But up until Luke chapter 16 in the book of Acts, Luke uses the pronoun they to refer to Paul and his companions. 
They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region. They were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And then in verse 9 of Acts chapter 16, Luke writes, A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And then we see a marked change in the pronoun in verse 10 of Acts chapter 16. Acts 16, 10. When he, Paul, had seen the vision, immediately we. All of a sudden, Luke is writing from the first person. Instead of they did this and they did that, now it's we. We sought to go to Macedonia, where Philippi is the town there, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So much of the book of Acts from chapter 16 on is the first-hand eyewitness account of Luke. But for the entire gospel of Luke, and for the book of Acts up until chapter 16 at this point, Luke had carefully compiled eyewitness accounts which he had carefully documented and investigated. Now Luke's gospel is very similar to the gospels of Matthew and, and Mark, but in Luke's telling of the good news of Jesus Christ, Luke includes some events that are in keeping with his purpose that the other Gospels don't include. Luke is the only one of the Gospel writers to tell us about the angel's visit to Mary, to tell her that she would bear a son. He's the only one to tell us about Gabriel appearing to Zacharias in the temple and of the birth of John the Baptist. He's the only one to record Mary's visit to see Elizabeth, the mother of John, and the only one to record Mary's glorious song of praise. We call it the Magnificent. That's a tremendous psalm in the book of Acts where she exalted the Lord. And I mention these events because Luke brings a humanness to the gospel that's in keeping with the purpose of his writing. How did Luke know about these things? How did he know about these accounts? He says because we got them from eyewitnesses and they were handed down and he investigated them. Now, a thorough investigation always includes intervening or interviewing eyewitnesses whenever that is, is possible. Now, if you put history together and time frames together, you'll discover that Mary, the mother of Jesus, would have still been alive when Luke wrote his gospel, when he compiled his gospel. I believe that Luke would have sat down with Mary, the aging Mary, the mother of Jesus, and asked her, what did you see? What did you hear? How did you feel? Or as we hear it in the hymn, tell me the story of Jesus. And Mary would have said, I love to tell the story as we sang today. And out of that tender and precious conversation of Mary's love and relationship with Jesus Christ, we have the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke. I can just see it. Luke goes to the home where Mary was living. Now, where was that? We know it was the home of John the Apostle. Well, where would the home of John the Apostle been this time? It would have been in Ephesus. We know that historically. So Luke goes to Ephesus. He sits down with Mary in the home of John, whom Jesus had entrusted the care of his mother. John is seated across from Mary. He's hanging on every tender word that she tells him. Mary is telling Luke about how Gabriel told her that she would be with child. 
by God's Holy Spirit. And Luke is carefully writing it down, word for word, not missing a thing as Mary tells it. Mary tells about going to visit her aged cousin Elizabeth because Gabriel told her that Elizabeth was with child as well. We know that that's going to be John the Baptist. Mary says that when Elizabeth came out to greet her, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaped for joy and filled with the Holy Spirit. Mary says, Elizabeth cried out, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy in my womb. And blessed is he, she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Luke's writing all this down, writing it down in consecutive order, not with just Mary, but every eyewitness that he could find of the, of the things, the story of Jesus. Mary's account and the accounts of many others is so that Theophilus would come to know the exact truth about the things that had been taught. Luke wants Theophilus to know some things with certainty, with certainty. Lloyd Douglas, the old preacher, tells about a man who on a visit to his old violin teacher asked his violin teacher, what's new? I will tell you what's new, said the teacher. He grabbed a tuning fork and he struck it and he banged it and an A came out, crystal clear. A tuning fork is always the note A. And he said, do you hear that? That's an A. Now upstairs, a soprano rehearses endlessly and she's off key. Next door, I have a cello player who plays his instrument very poorly. And there's an out-of-tune piano on the other side of me. I am surrounded by terrible noise day and night, plunking the tuning fork again, an A sanded out. Do you hear that? That's an A yesterday. That's an A today. It will be an A tomorrow. It will never change. Luke is insisting on the same kind of certainty. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever. And it's with this certainty that he writes to Theophilus and this certainty that he wants us to know as well from his accounts, to know. Back to Acts chapter 1, verse 1, as we look at this certainty. He says in verse 1 of Acts chapter 1, The first account I composed Theophilus, that is, the first accounts, the Gospel of Luke, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, Luke's gospel tells us a lot of what Jesus taught and, and what he did and began to do and teach. And not everything, but what Luke wanted his reader, Theophilus, to know and for us to know. Now, but here in the beginning of the book of Acts, Luke, the careful historian, chooses his words very carefully. The first account, the gospel of Luke, is about what Jesus began to do and teach, implying right here that in the second account, it's about what Jesus, what? Continues to do and teach. When Jesus uttered the words on the cross, it is finished, he was referring to his work of dying on the cross for our sins. The, the work of atonement is over. But Jesus' work of bringing sinners to himself and making disciples is far from finished. Luke's gospel is, careful, is a careful record of what Jesus began to do and teach, the book of Acts is a careful record of what Jesus continues to do and teach. 
And so we see that in, in verses 1 and 2 again. The first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, that's his ascension, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. The first account ends with Jesus giving specific orders to the apostles, to the disciples. Namely what? If we were just to paraphrase them and keep them brief, they were to remain in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came upon them. And secondly, as Luke will describe it, the disciples were to be Jesus' witnesses, both in Jerusalem, all Judea, and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, when we think of the book of Acts as just maps in history, we lose its message. Because if it wasn't for the book of Acts, we'd know very little about the spread of the early church, except for what we might glean from Paul's letters. We'd know very little, if anything at all, about how Jesus' orders were carried out. But it's much more, much more than maps in history. It's the account of what Jesus continued to do, what he continued to teach. Now, the traditional title of this book is the Acts of the Apostles. You might have that in your Bible. This title comes from a few second century ancient manuscripts that had this title at the end of the book. And so eventually it was moved to the front called the Acts of the, of the title, or the Acts of the Apostles. But the book only mentions the Acts of a couple of apostles like Peter and John, and later Paul, who's considered an apostle. It, it finishes the book with some of the Acts of the Apostle Paul. While some of the notable Acts compiled in the book from the careful, careful historian are those of Stephen and Philip, who weren't apostles at all. So the book isn't meant to be the chronicles of the 12 apostles. And if we act, uh, overemphasize or emphasize the acts of the apostles, we, we give it too much of a human element where we take the commands of Christ and what he told them to do and somehow they become what we have to do or can do through our own human resources and strength. Uh, whenever PBS or a secular uh, news media does a documentary on the spread of Christianity, they emphasize that human element because that's all they know how to do. Jesus did this and that, and the result was this and that. Peter went here, Paul went there, they did this and that. It's all about men, what they can or can't do, and how that supposedly affected our world. Others have suggested the title, The Acts of the Holy Spirit, and that's probably the best short title. The, Acts, the book of Acts sees the Holy Spirit coming with fire and power and working through the church. And throughout Luke's account in Acts, there are references to the promise of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring, the baptism, the fullness, the power, the witness, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Now, it would be impossible to explain the progress of the gospel without the work of the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, if the title, The Acts of the Apostles, overemphasizes the human element, then The Acts of the Holy Spirit overemphasizes the divine element. Since it overlooks the apostles and others as the chief characters through whom the Holy Spirit worked. It's also inconsistent with Luke's first verse, which implies that the acts and the words he reports are those of whom? The ascended Christ. They're those of Jesus working through his Holy Spirit. One of the interesting things about the book of Acts is that Luke uses three words interchangeably. 
The word Jesus, the word spirit, and the word God. And so really, when he uses those, he's referring kind of all three. In Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit in their giving of their offering, Peter said they lied to God. One of the really cool verses where we know the Holy Spirit is God because God lied to God. Acts chapter 16 verse 7 refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Jesus, which Paul does in his works as well. So John Stott, the great preacher, has suggested a title for the book of Acts. And he writes, The most accurate, though cumbersome, title, then, which does justice to Luke's own statement in verses 1 and 2, would be something like this. The continuing words and deeds of Jesus by the Spirit through his apostles. The continuing words of Jesus by his Spirit through his apostles, but I would have to add through his apostles and other believers who obey Christ, because those guys are in there too. And the first two verses of the book of Acts set Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. There's incredible stuff in these first two verses. No other religion in the world can claim words of their founder like all that he began to do and teach. All other religions regard their founder as having completed his ministry, completed his teaching or her teaching during his lifetime. Luke says that Jesus only began to do his. Muhammad isn't teaching anymore, even though successors of Muhammad are, nor is Buddha or Joseph Smith or Mary Baker Eddy. And what are all these founders doing now? Not a thing. Luke says that Jesus only began his work. He only began his teaching. He finished his work of atonement on the cross, but even that end was just a beginning. For after his resurrection and his ascension and the gift of the Holy Spirit, he continued to do his work first and foremost through the unique founding ministry of his chosen apostles and subsequently uh, after the apostles through every Christian and every church and every time in place. This then is the Jesus that we believe in. He is both a historical Jesus who walked upon this earth and taught and did miracles, who died on the cross. Several years ago, Peter Jennings did a long documentary called The Historical Jesus, or In Search of the Historical Jesus, or something like that. And uh, that's where, where he left it. But our Jesus, whom we believe in, who has saved us, is also the contemporary Jesus who is alive now, active now by way of his Holy Spirit, working through the lives and ministries of those who obey him. The Jesus of history began his ministry on earth. The Christ of glory has been active through his spirit ever since, according to the promise to be with his people always, even to the end of the age. But there's one more purpose that Luke had in mind for writing the book of Acts. And we see it in verse 8 of chapter 1, if you'd like to, to turn there. Luke says that Jesus gave orders by way of his Holy Spirit. And the question that would arise in the coming decades, in the coming centuries, in the coming millennia, would be, did the followers of Jesus obey these orders? Did they carry them out? In Luke's chapter 1, verse 8, Luke mentions the orders this way. Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. 
both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Matthew records Jesus as saying this also, and you're familiar with these words, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. If I were to paraphrase the command, taking all the Gospels together, the command was to go and make disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And we should, if we are careful historians, we would say, did they do that? Did they obey Jesus Christ? Did they follow his orders? And Luke is very careful to document that they did. And first of all, we see the command was to make disciples beginning in Judea and so forth. And this is very much or can be the outline that Luke puts together chronologically in careful order. The outline of the book of Acts could be this. He traces the spread of the gospel message and the making of disciples beginning in Jerusalem, which was the city, then in all Judea, which is the county or the province surrounding the city. Then in Samaria, which is just north. And it spreads out to Cyprus and Antioch, to Ethiopia, Galatia, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, that's Asia Minor. Then to Macedonia, Philippi, and then finally to Rome. And these are not just places on a map because Luke is documenting the spread of the gospel of Christ's followers obeying him. You know, and the book of Acts ends with an abrupt note just like the book of Philippians did. It, it, it ends without answering the question, well, whatever happened to old Apostle Paul? We, we left the poor guy there in prison in, in, Philo, or in Rome where he was suffering. Uh, you know, and what we need to understand is the book of Acts is not primarily about Paul. It's about Paul's obedience, of which Paul is a primary example. When Paul arrives at Rome in chains, the capital of the civilized world, Luke sees the gospel as having beginning to reach the ends of the earth. We just finished our, our, our study of Paul's letter to the Philippians, and interesting, as I said, it ends at the same place with Paul in prison, and we might wonder what happened to, the old, to Paul after this. We have kind of have to look historically in other parts of the Bible. Acts chapter 28, verses 30 and 31, it seems to end just as abruptly, but it does finish Luke's story. Acts chapter 28, verse 30 says, And Paul stayed two full years in his own rented quarters. I, I don't like that, the New American Standard, because a better translation is at his own expense. You know, because we might get the idea, well, Luke or, or Paul rented this really nice place, and you know, <laughs> but at his own expense. And we saw that how much Paul appreciated the offering that the Philippians sent uh, from, from their church by Epaphroditus. And then it says, Paul was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. End of Luke's story. And we want to say, well, what about Paul? You know, even from the book of Philippians, we don't find out what happened to Paul. And that's because the book of Philippians, the book of Acts in particular, 
doesn't answer that because it's what? It's about the continuing words and deeds of Jesus by his spirit through his apostles and other believers like Paul, those significant, who obey him. And so Paul or Luke ends it with when it reaches Rome. The followers of Jesus took the gospel to the world just like Jesus commanded. And secondly, the disciples obeyed Jesus' command to make disciples. Luke wanted to be so careful to show us the obedience of the disciples that he makes sure that he includes that in his writing in the book of Acts. In the Great Commission from Matthew chapter 28, there's only one command. The command is to make disciples. And the other three are participles, if you're an English major, that explain how that is done. It is done by going, baptizing, and teaching. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20 literally say, going, therefore. Going is a, a participle. Or we could translate it, when you go. Then we have the command, the only command that Jesus gave at this point, make disciples of all the ethnos, make disciples of all the peoples, make disciples of everybody from every land, from every place, from every tribe and nation. That's the command. Going, therefore, is how you do it. Secondly, baptizing, participle, ends in I-N-G, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, that's the third participle, to observe all that I commanded you. We make disciples by going, baptizing, and teaching. And the interested reader of Luke's writing would want to know, did they do that? Did they make disciples? Did they obey Christ? Let me point out just a couple of instances in the book of Acts. Turn to Acts chapter 6 at verse 7. Seventh verse of the sixth chapter of Acts. In the sixth chapter, verse 7 follows right after the apostles dealt or solved a complaint or problem in the church. You might remember that the, some of the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And they chose seven men who were filled with the Spirit of God to meet the needs of these widows. And, and one of the sub-themes that's really neat that we'll find in the book of Acts is that a problem or something or persecution or something's going to arise in the church that threatens to, to defeat not only the church but the work of God, that a problem comes up. And then the church addressed that problem through prayer and by God's word. And once they had done that, God increased the number of disciples. That, that's a common thing. You know, we think, oh, problems are problems. Problems, according to God, is a chance, an opportunity for us to obey God and know his blessing. And verse 7 says, as a result of this, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued, disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the, to the faith. The number of disciples continued to increase. In other words, they made disciples. One more, the 14th chapter of Acts, the 21st verse. Acts chapter 14, verse 21. At this point, Paul had been stoned in Lystra, a city. He'd been dragged out of the city. He'd been left for dead. 
he gets up, goes back into the city, presumably to keep on preaching. Uh, you know, the disciples were standing around him going, well, he's dead. <laughs> That's it. No more here, you know. And, and Paul gets back up and goes right back into the city. You know, I think Luke was probably one of those guys standing there. This, you know, this wouldn't have been an eyewitness, Luke's eyewitness account. And the next day, Paul left with Barnabas and went to a town called Derby. And we pick it up in verse 21 of Luke, or of Acts chapter 14, or <laughs> excuse me, verse 21 of Acts 14. It says, after they had preached the gospel in that city, that is Derby, and had, now your translation may not say this, but in the New American Standard and the more literal translations, it says, after they had made many disciples. What was the command of Jesus Christ? Make disciples. They specifically fulfilled that command to make disciples. Luke, the careful historian who writes with purpose, God's purposes in mind, uses the exact same words as the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel and made many disciples. They obeyed Christ by taking the gospel throughout the world in their Jerusalem, in their Payette, in Jem County. Hey, they even went to North Idaho. They need the gospel there. And to the United States and to the remotest part of the world. Book one, the gospel of Luke, about what Jesus began to do and teach. Book two, the book of Acts, what Jesus continued to do and teach through those who obeyed him by making disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the remotest part of the earth. Book three, question mark, for our purposes, we're going to call it Grace Baptist Church. We're going to call it Grace Baptist. I like that when somebody calls themselves a singing group or their ministry the 29th chapter of the book of Acts because that's what we're going to be experiencing daily as we continue to study the book of Acts and are faithful to his world. What Jesus will continue to do and say through Grace Baptist Church. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for, for Luke, the careful historian. We thank you for his abilities to comfort and strengthen the Apostle Paul as a physician in order that Paul could continue to, to ministry. And in many ways, we see Luke as an example of, of all that be, Jesus began to do and teach. And Father, as we study these words that come to us from eyewitness accounts and then through the handwriting of Luke, in his account, Father, I pray that you would continue to open up our minds and our hearts to what Jesus wants to do and what he wants to do through us as Grace Baptist Church, among us who gather here on a regular basis on Sunday morning and other times, Father, that you will show us very specific things of how we can be your witnesses, how we can make disciples, and how we can experience the hand of your blessing as those who obey what you told us to do and to say. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.